You're listening to Just It Between the Lines, where we have real discussions about real issues in public safety. Welcome back to our podcast. I'm Megan Etheridge. Today we're joined with Amy Hutzel, and we're also joined with Rod Demery. Amy, can you kind of give us a little bit of background on you? And then, Rod, we want to hear a little bit about you as well. Okay. Sure. And thanks for having me back. Yes, thank I love you. to come to Gypstick and record podcasts with y'all because it's, it's always an interesting and enlightening discussion. So I'm really happy to be here. Um, my name is Amy Hutzel, as you said, and I am a program director at the Criminal Justice Coordinating Council. And my unit at CJCC, as we call it, is the Sexual Assault, Child Abuse, and Human Trafficking Unit. And so we work on several statewide projects related to those topics. We have a sexual assault response team project that we work on that I think I spoke about last time I was here. Um, We have a couple of statewide human trafficking projects that we work on. And today we're here to talk about our cold case project that we call the Georgia Sexual Assault Kit Initiative or Georgia Saki Task Force. Okay, well, that's a pretty neat little acronym for it. Yes, Rod, can you share with us a little bit about you? Yeah, I'm Rod Demery. I'm a retired police officer. Um, the last 14 years I spent in homicide. Um, wow. Prior to that, I worked robbery, sex crimes, um, tactical units, everything probably in law enforcement. So 31 years of law enforcement. After I retired, I traveled out here and started with the Saki program as a coordinator. Well, thank you both so much. We have two very, very experienced people here to talk about it with us, and we're really excited to hear from you all. Great. We're excited to be here. Good. Thank you. So I know the last time we talked that you were talking about there was a problem that was addressed with funding and the sexual assault kits. Will you tell me a little bit more about that? Sure. Absolutely. Going back to 2015, there was an article that was published in the AJC that determined or that identified rather that there were thousands of rape kits at Grady Hospital. And so as a result of that kind of media attention, um, we learned that we had a problem in the state. At that time, the Fulton County District Attorney's Office took possession of those kits and got them to the crime lab. Um, The crime lab, as we all know, has a lot of work, all of the evidence that they're processing across the state. And so at that time at CJCC, we applied for funding from the District Attorney's Office of New York, of all places, and we received $1.9 million. So that became what's known as the Danny Grant. Again, that came from Cy Vance uh, in his DA's office in New York. They had a little bit of extra money from all of the prosecutions that they were doing, Wall Street and so forth and so on. And so they created this project and it benefited not only the state of Georgia, but multiple other jurisdictions across the state. And of course, the victims. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because that was the whole purpose of allowing other jurisdictions to utilize those funds. So we had $1.9 million and we decided jointly with the crime lab at the GBI to outsource those kits. And so we started sending kits off around 2016 to a third-party lab, um, and they started processing kits. And about that same time, there was a new law that was passed in the legislature, Senate Bill 304. And that law kind of changed the way that kits are required to be sent to the lab. Okay. 
Before we talk about sure, that, can yeah. I ask, you said that it goes to a third party. Yes. So I'm sure a few people wonder, how can you guarantee the validity of those third party labs? Oh, that's a good question. So that work had to be negotiated. Okay. And I am not an expert on that negotiation because that was handled by the crime lab. But they worked diligently with actually two different labs that they were outsourcing to to make sure that the standard that they were used to or that they require in-house at the crime lab was also the quality and standard that was being upheld by the lab. So that okay. was a negotiation process mm -hmm. that took place at the crime lab, between the crime lab and that third-party lab. Yeah. Okay. Outs outsource lab. Okay. That's great. Mm -hmm. You can go into what you were going to say. I know so I the law. So the law was Senate Bill 304. And it required that law enforcement must take possession of the kits that they had not had in their possession prior. Mm -hmm. So those would be sexual assault kits that may be in hospitals, like the ones at Grady Hospital, or they could have also been in rape crisis centers, for example. If they okay. have on-site forensic medical services on-site, they may have been storing those. So they had to take possession of those. Now, were the hospitals not required previously to turn those over? Yes. So it gets a little complicated. Um, there's actually two different kinds of sexual assault kits that have different requirements under the law. So we have what we call reported kits and non-reported kits because under state law, we are allowed to provide sexual assault forensic medical exams to victims regardless of whether or not they report the crime to law enforcement. And the reason we do that is because we want to give victims the opportunity to have that evidence collected and, mm -hmm. and more importantly, really to have that medical care that they may need as a patient as opposed to a victim. But we want to give them that opportunity. And we do, from a criminal justice perspective, want to collect that evidence because what we know about the neurobiology of trauma that we talked about on our last podcast and how a human being and more specifically, their brain may process trauma that sometimes mm -hmm. we need sleep cycles or we need time before we can really make a decision. And before maybe they might change their mind. Exactly. And then you already have that evidence instead of it being lost. Exactly. So then we have that evidence. Exactly. And so if a week later, a month later, a few months later, that victim says, you know what, now I'm ready to go through the process, then we have that evidence. And so that's why we do that. So. Getting back to your question, if that kit is associated with a crime that was not reported, then hospitals should still turn that over to law enforcement. Under state law, law enforcement are required to keep that for a year. If it is associated with a crime, under the new law, law enforcement must pick it up within three days, and then they have 30 days to get that to the crime lab. So there may have been some you know, confusion mm -hmm. at first. But I think most of the jurisdictions around the state now understand the new law that they keep the they keep the ones that are have not been reported until such time as they are reported, if they are, and then they go ahead and send the ones that have been reported to the crime lab within 30 days. So I'm sure some agencies have some kits that they may have that might not have gone through the crime lab. Are you recommending they also send them to the crime lab now? So if any law enforcement agency in Georgia has any kits that are associated with a crime, they should be sent to the crime lab. There may have been some oversight or rather 
they may have missed some. And if they did, that's completely fine. Mm -hmm. They need to just go ahead and send them in. So they could be 10, 20 years old. It doesn't matter. If there is a crime associated with that kid, it should be at the crime lab. Okay. And with talking about that, because, you know, the state of Georgia is huge. I'm sure you have some statistics for us for how many sexual assault kits there are, maybe about backlog with the crime lab, because I'm sure that they've got an overabundance of cases that they're working on. Yeah. So the good news is through the Danny Grant, we cleared our initial backlog. So going back to the law that was passed in 2016, Senate Bill 304, that required that all of those kits, so law enforcement was taking possession of any kit that they didn't already have possession of. They were combining that inventory with what they already had in their evidence rooms or in their property rooms. And they were required under the law to submit that to the crime lab by August of 2016. So that Mm -hmm. became our backlog at the time. And as of 2019, all of the kits had been tested. And we were up at one point to somewhere probably around 5,000 kits that needed to be tested. And so they cleared all that. Now, there may be a small backlog at the crime lab just because of the workload, but they're working those cases and getting those kits cleared as well. Under the law, um, the crime lab is required to file a report with the legislature every December. So we get updates and we know exactly where they are. And they've stayed on top of it really well. Okay. That's great. Yeah. 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 It sounds like that's really helped to have that money and to be able to keep going. Yes. Thank you, District Attorney's Office of New York. We appreciate it. When you did the testing for the sexual assault kits, what were the results? So, as you know, anytime you test a sexual assault kit, if there is evidence there, a DNA profile may be developed. That DNA profile is then uploaded by our state CODIS administrator at the GBI into CODIS, the database that connects DNA profiles. So, as those profiles were coming back to the state of Georgia, they would undergo a 30-day technical analysis at the crime lab, making sure, again, like you mentioned before, that the quality of the work was the standard that we require here in Georgia. Um, And then those profiles would get uploaded into CODIS. As we were developing CODIS matches, we then had to take a look at the cases associated with those matches. And so we realized that we have, are going to have a lot of cases that need to be investigated right, or, re, or re-looked at or and potentially prosecuted. So we applied for some more money. Is that where you got Rod? Yes, this is where <laughs> Rod comes in. So we applied for more money to the Bureau of Justice Assistance. At that time, there was a national initiative, uh, the National Sexual Assault Kit Initiative mm-hmm. under BJA. And they were providing money to jurisdictions for testing, we, but we didn't need that. But then also for investigations and, and prosecutions, what they call the downstream effects of all the rape kit testing. So we got $3 million from that grant, and we formed the Georgia Sexual Assault Kit Initiative that Mr. Rod Demery is our fearless leader and runs oh. that project for us. Well, Rod, do you want to tell us a little bit about that project? Basically, the the project is, is exactly as Amy explained, but we've sort of put together a task force where we have prosecutors from Cobb County, Fulton County, DeKalb County, and a statewide prosecutor. With those prosecutors, we have investigators that actually do the 
the heavy lifting, if you will. Once we get those hits back, we confirm them and, and, and begin investigations. And I, I think it's a pretty exciting program. I mean, I've been in law enforcement a long time, and I think it's, uh, it's actually pretty phenomenal to see someone that may have been sexually assaulted or raped back in 1999, and then all of a sudden we found this suspect. Um, I think probably what's more incredible is when you have a suspect that has done three or four, even 10 or 15 different rapes. And typically what has happened is uh, we've gotten a profile back, and some are identified through CODIS, and some we have to actually do some gumshoe detective work to find out who that person is. But when you find this person and their DNA has shown up in maybe 15 different victims, well, you have to put it in perspective and realize that when the victim told the first time, maybe there was not enough evidence. Maybe someone didn't believe him. Maybe, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it, it was a, a case of he said, she right. said type. But when that same suspect's profile is found in 15 different people, it kind of gives it a profound effect. And we realize that the, the person who's committed these crimes are serial rapists. The exciting part for me is is that we get to go out and find them and bring them in and uh, prosecute them. So it's pretty exciting to me. And to be able to bring those victims some peace of mind. Yeah, I think that's probably the most incredible part. You know, a week or so ago, we were talking to quite a few victims on one particular case. And to, to see them get that sort of sense of, you know, finally I believed or finally something's going to happen or I thought this case was gone forever is really gratifying. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. One of the things I would just add That has been really interesting. And what we have found in Georgia, and it's consistent with, I think, other Saki sites and other projects across the country, is taking a look at the criminal histories associated with the individuals that we've now identified. And when you can look back 10, 15, 20 years at the number of arrests that many of these suspects or defendants have actually been involved in or the things that they've been involved in you realize that this is not a sex crimes issue and it's not a woman's issue. It's it's actually very much a public safety issue because you've got burglary arrests, murder, larceny, other sexual assaults, as Rod mentioned. And so it's really very much a new lens that we can look at our sexual assault investigations through. And so we're really grateful for that opportunity to take a second look at a lot of these through yeah. that lens. That's great. Yep. We have um, 21 open indictments. Those are people that we've actually got indictments on. And again, some of those cases are two or three victims and some mm-hmm. go up to 15 victims. There are some warrants open now for people we've identified. Mm-hmm. And obviously there's several open investigations. Of those, we've gotten eight convictions thus far, um, which is a uh, on par, pretty fast paced, I would think, for for a couple of years. Right. So it's 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 all pretty exciting. And to to kind of go back to Amy's point, you know, you know, when I when I look at this project and I see the things that it's done for people, it's just amazing to me. And and, and I think that's what I'm excited about. Sexual assault rape has always been, or historically been, sort of a crime that you know either people shied away from or denied. Some of these victims are they're considered the lesser among us. And And they felt shame for saying that anything had happened. And some of them didn't have the resources or the social status to get the the credibility, I guess, to to have their cases prosecuted. And I think probably for me, that's probably the most important, you know, if you have this, this person who was raped at the age of 16, uh, you know, and no one believed her. You know, it's something to see that come to fruition. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, and I think that's great. I know that it makes you feel better that you're getting them help and 
I'm sure that they're also offered some sort of victim advocate. Yeah, we have, um, and, and uh, gosh, I forgot to mention, part of that team is a victim's advocate and phenomenal. I mean, to go out and talk to someone, get them the resources or the therapy or even some of the things that they need in everyday life. The trauma of the rape may have set them back in life. You know, right. we've, we've done things like got refrigerators, uh, mm-hmm. you know, and, and helped them with uh, some of the resources they didn't have and kind of start to rebuild. I think the important part of it is, is that the criminal justice system hadn't forgotten these people. Yes. And, you know, to reach back and grab them and bring them up to par. I think the fact that they're listened to now and provided the resources is amazing. Well, and I think that says a lot now for public safety, the criminal justice system, because it makes a statement that if it happens to somebody now, it's not going to be taken lightly. You'll be believed. Somebody will look into it. And then that way they feel more like they can come forward. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, law enforcement's credibility is is always in question, you know, in, in recent years. But um, this is something that kind of builds it back up. You know, the fact is, is working sex crimes, I worked sex crimes 20 years ago. So I know how tough and difficult some of those cases are to get prosecuted. Mm-hmm. I think the fact that we're able to now keep our word as law enforcement yes. and, and take care of people is probably something that's going to go on to, to make this project even more successful. Absolutely. Now, I know that you also have a cold case homicide initiative. We do. Will you give us a little bit more about that? Yeah, uh, and I'll let Amy uh, talk about the technical and, and financial aspects of it. But, but the long <laughs> and short. Amy got another grant. <laughs> but the, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but, but the long and short of it is, is it allows us the resource to go back and investigate cold case homicides. Mm-hmm. Um, if they have a sexual component, some of the coroner's offices or medical examiner's offices throughout the state have those cases. And okay. Some of them have rape kits that are attached to them. So with this information and, and the resources that we have now, we can actually go back and investigate cold case homicides and, wow. and, and provide resources to investigators around the state. Is there a time limit on when DNA is not good anymore? No, um, no. Uh, as long as you have a usable sample and uh, something to compare it to, it's uh, always there. Okay. And if it's preserved correctly, obviously, then, then you're going to have those points of reference or investigation. And homicide is uh, another one of those crimes. You know, there are people that have had loved ones that were murdered years and years ago, and they come back and find out we have a lead on that suspect, you know. And, and recently, we, we've, we've had that with success with the Samuel Little case, where you have a family who survived and have been years, you know, even decades with the loved one that was murdered with mm-hmm. seemingly no leads to provide that kind of resource and that kind of help to someone. It's just amazing. For our listeners who might not be familiar with Samuel Little, can you tell us a little bit more about that case? Yeah, Samuel Little is considered the most prolific serial killer in U.S. history. He's claimed to have killed maybe 90 people or 93 people. Um, I think he's been credited by the FBI with at least 60. This is a man who's, for decades, just killed people. For him, sort of like the, the, the sexual assaults, he kind of picked out his victims, the kind of people that he considered would never be missed, and to finally start putting together cases and with real solid evidence that he's committed is um, something that, that, I mean, the state can actually be proud of. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And how many cases were there in Georgia? Well, I think we've identified at least one, but he's claimed a couple. So we're okay, working, in Georgia. We're, right, in Georgia. One was in the Savannah area, um, mm-hmm. and the other two are closer to the Atlanta area. So we're working those two, actually, as, as we speak. 
to find out the validity of what he said and mm-hmm. if there's evidence attached to it. Okay. Is there anything you want to add about that, Amy? I know you want to add about the funding a little bit. Sure. Well, so our work on the Samuel Little cases are really brought to our attention the need for the cold case homicide initiative. Mm-hmm. So as Samuel Little was confessing his crimes, he was in a, a little small jail in Texas with a Texas Ranger. We would get notified of the things that he was saying about what he did in Georgia. There were there were nine and that he has claimed that he um, has committed in Georgia. So our job at the task force was to connect those cases with the local jurisdiction. We all know how many jurisdictions we have in Georgia. There's a lot of them. So our job was to try to figure out where exactly he was talking about and then connect with those local law enforcement agencies to start digging through their cold case homicide cases. Wow. So our first one was in Macon, Georgia, and this was an opportunity to get justice for the family of Fredonia Smith. She was killed by Samuel Little in 1982, and the process in Macon was very easy because they had excellent records that they kept, and so we were actually able to match up exactly what he said with exactly what had been in their case file. And interestingly, the original investigator on that case was retired. He actually went on to work at the FBI, but he still carried Fredonia's case with him because it meant so much to him that he was never able to resolve that case. And so through that work and through also trying to connect with other jurisdictions, we realized that there were those cases out there, right? So we would say, hey, this is what we're looking at. And they would say, well, I got this one, but there was a ligature used. Well, Mm -hmm. Samuel Little's MO was manual strangulation. So we knew that wasn't his case. But wait a minute. What about that one? It helped you connect more. Yes. So let's let's see if we can get you some resources to try to work on that, too. It can be really challenging because as Rod, uh, who is an expert, of course, can tell you, in a typical homicide investigation, you have a body and a crime scene and you know your jurisdiction and you're mm-hmm. looking for who committed the crime. In this case, we knew who committed the crime, but we have to now You're working backwards. Work backwards. Exactly. So it's been challenging. Rod mentioned the Savannah cases. We were able to resolve a case down there working collaboratively with the Savannah Police Department. Francis Campbell's family has now received the justice, you know, or the answers rather that they've been waiting for for so long. And in that case, we actually had to review the death records at the Chatham County Coroner's Office because her death had been misclassified as an undetermined cause. It wasn't actually classified as a homicide. Wow. Right. And so this is what they're struggling with throughout the country Mm -hmm. um, in trying to connect all 90-something cases. Is whether or not it was classified that right way. It may have been misclassified. And so, unfortunately, we were able to use the resources of the task force to dig through. And, we, and our team, Sarah Pedersen and Emma Wolf, were literally in the coroner's office for three days looking at every death record to try to see if there was something that matched up with what he said. And at the last minute before we were scheduled to leave, we found Francis Campbell's death certificate. And there was a handwritten note on it that had information on it that was consistent with what we were looking for. And so we turned that over to 
Rob Santoro at Savannah PD, and he and he was able to confirm through photo identification given directly to Samuel Little that that was indeed our victim. And so it's been really challenging. And we have, as Rod said, we have a few more in Georgia that we'd like to continue to to work on because we'd like to see all nine of those cases resolved for our families in Georgia. Well, and I'm sure it's a little bit different with Samuel Little, too, because like you said, he was able to identify. If you didn't have the person telling you, yeah, this is what I did, it makes it harder to piece it together, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. Rod could probably Sometimes. speak to that better Sometimes. than me, yeah. Okay. With With the project, when we find evidence, uh, especially DNA evidence and, and sexual assault kits that mm-hmm. are connected to homicides, it's probably just the same type of investigation mm-hmm. without someone coming forward and saying, hey, you know what, I, I did this crime. But to be able to put together a suspect and work it, as you claim, work it backwards, then I don't have any doubt that we're going to resolve a few other cases that mm-hmm. way. When you look at homicide and, and, and murder cases and the sexual assault cases, I mean, I I personally think they're they're probably the worst violations ever. I don't know. I, I just don't think that there's ever been anything like this, and I've never seen anything like it in my, my years of law enforcement. Right. And I think it's amazing that we're to that point well, yeah. that it's something we can do. Yeah, yeah, and, and it's amazing. And, you know, I, I, I can speak from personal experience. You know, uh, it was 40 years before I found out who killed my mother. So that kind of closure and that, that, that kind of resolution to someone is just amazing. I mean, the, I don't know that. That law enforcement expected to say anything like this, and I and I'm sure some of the investigators or detectives that have long retired never thought their cases would be solved. Right. And to see something like this is just nothing short of incredible. Mm-hmm. Well, if you don't mind me asking, is that part of what brought you into law enforcement? You know, I I get asked that question a lot, but um, I was three years old when my mother was killed, so I don't have a lot of memory of my mother. Mm-hmm. And you know, I think God just kind of shielded me from that memory. But what I do have memory of is my grandmother. And my grandfather, who had to bury their daughter, growing up in in our household, you know, they they held on to their faith, but they had that that struggle that they had to deal with. And I think my path was kind of charted that way. When I went into law enforcement, it was not necessarily to you know resolve issues that I had with my mother's death, but I think probably to my my grandparents not getting the closure that they needed. That you wanted um, to help other right, people, right, right, and, and it gave me that motivation. So every homicide I went out on, it was impossible for me to ever go home without trying to close that homicide. It's just. Mm-hmm. It just didn't happen. You know, I'd right. stay out for weeks. And of course, it wasn't until I was older in my law enforcement career that I realized that that was probably the, the motivating factor. Can I ask Rod a question? Yes, please. <laughs> we work together like every day, so I could ask him this anytime, but it just occurred to me. I've heard family members of homicide victims say, do not say you're giving us closure. There is no closure for a homicide yeah, victim's I, I, family. What do you, what do yeah, you think I, I about think, that? I think that's a... Uh, a matter of each individual victim. And for some, you just want to know what happened, you know, and for some, they want some sort of uh, justice to be paid. Mm. Um, I think closure is just probably a word that's kind of fluid that people are kind of comfortable with or not comfortable with. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. Some think it's politically incorrect. Mm -hmm. You know, personally, I think there's a a closure of a chapter of whatever. I mean, for me, it was 40 years. After that, there was absolutely a closure of that chapter of my life. Thanks. I've been meaning to ask you that. <laughs> so do you just, what else would you use, Amy? Do you just say, you know. Answers. Giving, answers. Providing okay. answers. Yeah. yeah. When I heard that, because I, I was always saying that, getting closure from right. victims' families. 
And so I kind of shifted my terminology just to be we provide answers. to. Mm-hmm. And then as Rod said, like, it's up to them whether that's closure for them or not. Right. Absolutely. Because yeah. mm-hmm. everybody's different. Yeah. Right. So, Rod, can you tell us how different is this task force compared to all your years in law enforcement? I think the uh, I think the passion's different. Okay. You know, and I think the energy and the motivation's a lot different. You know, any anybody in law enforcement will tell you the frustrations and the brick right. walls and <laughs> seemingly not able to find anything. Uh, something like this gives you hope. I mean, it's real scientific evidence that actually works, and it's most times fail safe. You know, it's one of those things that you have a starting point. You know, if you get this profile, this DNA profile from a rape kit or even a homicide case, you you know that. There's a person that's attached to that. Mm-hmm. You know, the trick is is find out who that person is. So I think the I've never seen that. You know, I've seen officers so frustrated, and investigators so frustrated that there was nothing else they can go on. Mm-hmm. Um, now getting something that that is almost a witness. <laughs> you know, it's just uh, it's just amazing. You know, the only thing left to do now is the police work. And and with that point in mind, you can have the evidence, all the evidence you want, DNA or whatever, but you're still going to have to do the legwork and. We're fortunate enough to have, I mean, Georgia has some motivated investigators, and I've met some of the most incredible detectives ever here, and and the prosecutors are pretty fierce. So you're going to see them chase down the last lead. Right. So your recommendation for young officers, young investigators, young detectives would just be to hold on to that hope because there is change? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and to realize that they have the technology that we didn't have. You know, back when I was listening to cassette tapes, they have iPods, you know, iPhones. So <laughs> it, as, the, as the technology has developed, so has law enforcement. And I think probably most importantly is as the technology has developed, you know, the hope has developed and the equality for all victims has developed. And I think that's what's most exciting for me. It's just not someone's word anymore. We actually can put some science to it and something that's really factual. That's that's great. I think that's a perfect segue for me to talk about some of the other tools we're providing under this grant. There you go, Amy. <laughs> <laughs> um, Rod was mentioning how things have progressed from an investigative perspective and the tools that we have available now to investigations and to law enforcement. And so we've taken a look at some of those tools. And under our project, we have dedicated funding to genetic genealogy testing, for example. We are also providing resources at the state level for VICAP entry. So VICAP, as our listeners probably know, is the FBI's database that matches motive and case characteristics. So in those cases where we don't have DNA, it's, it's, and, there, and, and when you have a high level of violence in a case mm-hmm. or a serial case or a homicide, we can utilize the VICAP tool. And as with any database, it's only as strong as the information in it. So we're highly encouraging law enforcement agencies across the state to utilize VICAP. It can be time consuming. And our team has resources to actually do VICAP entry for law enforcement across the state. And we also can provide technical assistance in that entry as well. On the DNA side, I mentioned genetic genealogy. This is the testing that many people are probably aware of. It was the process used in the Golden State Killer case where we're taking evidence getting a profile and uploading that into public DNA databases and then researching family members to try to isolate a a suspect. 
And we've had some success with that in our task force. I think Broad can probably speak to um, one of our biggest successes in that. But just to know, for the listeners to know that we are providing that. It is a statewide initiative. And we are more than willing to help with that should there be cases that law enforcement across the state has that, that they need our assistance on or they need the resources because it's expensive. Instead of burdening local budgets, we're able to utilize some of the federal funds to do that. Okay. So while we're talking about them contacting you for help, what's the best way for them to contact you, Amy, or you, Rod? Call Rod. <laughs> 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 yeah, we are um, a Criminal Justice Coordinating Council. And Amy, if you have all those numbers and email addresses. I'm going to give can... out Rod's personal phone number. Yeah, yeah and everybody can call me. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's what is your email? They can email you rodney.demery, D E M E R Y, at cjcc.ga.gov. All right, perfect. Amy, I also noticed that. You use the funds to assist on other cases, too. And this one, I believe, is Rod's, Lorenzo Williams. Yeah, our team investigated this case, which was really fascinating to me. In 99, this individual raped three different people. Each of these women woke up to see somebody standing in their their house. Mm -hmm. Um, He went largely under the radar until we got the resources to do phenotyping and uh, genetic uh, genealogy, Mm -hmm. DNA, as Amy explained. So with phenotyping, we can create or scientists can create what this person looks like, you know, the color of the eyes, the hair, physical Mm -hmm. description, what have you. And in genetic testing, you create a family tree forward to get this person. That investigation led to a man who had since left the area and moved to Arkansas. When our investigators went to confirm his DNA, we got a sample. The next day, we found out he was missing and Eventually, we found out that he had committed suicide. So cases like that, it, well, you know, you, you can imagine, and, and even though this man, for whatever reason, didn't have his day in court or want his day in court, but you can imagine from 1999 to 2020, you know, 2019, to go under the radar like that and some science like this kind of bringing it, mm-hmm. bringing it to light is amazing. Yeah, and, and I think that we would probably be remiss in not mentioning that in some instances, the same technology or the same science can clear someone who's innocent. So Absolutely. it has, um, oh, it yeah, has a, a double, double effect. And again, that goes back to the credibility of law enforcement, the people that are involved in law enforcement. Most are dedicated. They want answers and they want resolve. Uh, in this particular case, it, it's fascinating to me you know, to, to build what someone looks like through DNA, to kind of build their family tree you know, for it and find out where this person is just phenomenal. Absolutely. I think it's important in that case, too, to kind of mention the victim side, too. Our, this was a, a case in Cobb County, and our prosecutor was Teresa Schieffer, and our investigator on the task force was Christy Nurbon. And when they did notification to the victims, one of them said that she had watched cold case TV shows for many years and wondered when it was going to be her turn. Oh, wow. Yeah. And so they reported that that was really profound for them and maybe one of the most rewarding experiences they had had in their career. And certainly with the Georgia Saki Task Force was being able to provide that, and I'm going to use the word again, closure, or provide answers to those victims. Mm-hmm. So We also really strive to make sure that those notifications are done 
in a way that's victim-centered and trauma-informed. We do have resources at the task force as well. There's a template that we have developed for victim notification policies that can be used across the state. Certainly that victim advocates are present as they were in that case when those notifications are delivered is very important. We also have funding set aside. Unfortunately, under our state laws, our Crime Victims Compensation Fund, which typically would pay for counseling, is not applicable to many of these cases because of the length of time Uh um, they've become ineligible. And so we have set aside funding using Victims of Crime Act funding specifically for our victims for counseling. And so our victim advocates who work on the task force kind of administer that. They're getting our victims and their families therapy services all over the state. They've created a network of therapists that are trauma-informed and evidence-based using those practices to make sure that we're getting them the resources they need there as well. That's amazing. Thank you all. What challenges did the Saki grant allow law enforcement agencies across the state to begin to address? Wow. Where do I start? Um, (laughs) So obviously, the biggest challenge is relieving the burden that is placed on a local law enforcement agency when suddenly you're getting a lot of CODIS hits. Mm -hmm. Our investigators across the state are working current cases. And so unless there is a dedicated cold case unit, which many of our law enforcement agencies do not have, then they're they're adding to their caseload by the cases that need to be reopened as a result of sexual assault kit testing. So to be able to provide the resources, and I think one thing maybe we haven't talked about is our statewide prosecutor and our statewide investigator that is on the task force as well. So when an agency is receiving a CODIS hit and they do not have the time to look into it, our team can come in and actually work with you. We can actually go as far as swearing in our investigators and prosecutor to actually investigate and prosecute, or we can just help out as we're doing in one jurisdiction. Rod mentioned this is an open case, so we won't go into specifics, but we've got one that we're working with that has, I think, what, 16 codices? 16 codices. Yeah. And so we're providing consultation where our statewide prosecutor is working directly with the local level prosecutor. Our investigators are working with the local investigators, and our victim advocate is working with the community-based advocacy program, the Sexual Assault Center, in in this particular area as well. So we're here to help, and Mm -hmm. that's, I think, probably the biggest challenge is just finding the time and the resource to investigate cases that aren't part of your normal workload. And that, and having the experts who know, you know, this is what I do every single day, so let's make sure we ask this or anything like that. Because sometimes it's easy to let things slip through the cracks when it's not something that you focus on every single day. So I'm sure they appreciate having y'all come in to be able to help. Yeah. And I, and I think it's uh, important to to mention that these are actually active law enforcement professionals right. or criminal justice professionals, active prosecutors, uh, investigators, Atlanta PD, uh, detective. And it's just a phenomenal team to go into a, a jurisdiction that may not have the resources or the manpower, for that matter, to go Absolutely. out and, and work some of these cold cases because they're overwhelmed with the cases that they have. And to provide that opportunity or that assistance to them is um, something that they all obviously appreciate and something that we can make happen. 100%. Another challenge that we already mentioned is just like from a budgetary perspective. Mm-hmm. Smaller law enforcement agencies that do not typically have the same type of resources 
that some of our larger ones do. So Mm -hmm. if we can provide funding for the genetic genealogy, or if we can provide someone who can do VICAP entry for you, because as Rod said, if the manpower is not there, then that's another challenge that that our team is is ready and willing to meet. Yeah. And, you know, we we understand that. You know, I I worked as a police officer for a long time and a detective and Someone bringing me in new cases when I have a, a stack on my desk. I mean, it's a little it's overwhelming. Really, it's really frustrating. They don't give you the resources, and something like this kind of helps out a lot. And it also helps you be able to help the victim, right? Because all around, that's what public that's safety what it's all wants about. to do. And everyone works well together. I mean, law Absolutely. enforcement is a very tight knit community, and um, we we kind of work together. Are there any other resources that you know of that would help law enforcement agencies in connection to sexual assault cases? We offer training as well, mm-hmm. um, and I think that's probably a big thing to touch on. Okay. Um, you know, and, and from my perspective and, and experience, you know, it, the training has to evolve with the technology. Um, and I think some of the rural law enforcement agencies may not have the resources to get that type of training. So when we can provide that training for them on DNA, you know, phenotyping, and and then understand it on how to investigate cold cases when it comes to whether it's sexual assault or homicide cases. Those are resources that, that we gladly offer. So if they need that, they just email Rod, right? Right, exactly. <laughs> Can I tell you about our awesome partnership with Gypstick and the Prosecuting Attorneys Council? Let's hear it. <laughs> so in 2020, we are launching a new training initiative, as Rod mentioned. This is a two-day sexual assault symposium. It is a collaboration between us at the Criminal Justice Coordinating Council and the Georgia Saki Project and Gypstick. You guys here at Gypstick and the Prosecuting Attorneys Council. And we're actually going to be providing these trainings across the state at Gypstick campuses. So the first day of that training is our trauma-informed investigations training, where we are talking specifically about how to investigate sexual assault cases. And we also have a section of that, a large chunk of it is on a rapist typologies and criminal profiling. And then in day two, we are doing a half day on strangulation. And because what we know about strangulation cases, uh, I think you guys had Sarah come down and do a podcast on strangulation. She teaches that with Jay Eisner from the DeKalb County Police Department. And so they're doing a half day on that because what we know about strangulation cases is that they're indicators for different types of violence as well. So there's actually been a correlation between violence against women, specifically strangulation and mass shootings and specifically shootings involving law enforcement. And so we're looking at some of the statistics now to determine in Georgia where we've had fallen officers that were killed in the line of duty, how many of those uh, perpetrators actually had strangulation histories as well, because at the national level, we're seeing a connection. So we talk about that in day two. And then we close with our cold case project, where we talk a lot about that. And Teresa Schieffer comes in, and um, we'll talk specifically more about some of our cases. We'll talk about lawfully owed DNA and how we are hopeful in the future to bring a project to Georgia that will kind of identify if we have gaps in what offenders owe their DNA to CODIS who may not be in CODIS. Because again, the strength of any database is what's in it, right? Right. So if we have offenders across the state that have not been swabbed, we want to take a look at that. 
So we're going to talk a little bit about that in that symposium too. And so we're really happy that Gypstick is on board and that the Prosecuting Attorneys Council is helping us with that. As yes, well. it's a wonderful partnership. Yes, it's always always good to has work been. Too. Yes, yes, we love us some Gypstick, and we love y'all. <laughs> <laughs> so for our victims across the state, in addition to the fund that we have for therapy. We have a portal um, that is on our website. SVRGA.org is the website for the victim notification portal. And that is where victims can go in. And if they think that they may have been a part of the backlog or their case rather was part of the backlog, they can go in and actually notify us what their preferences are on notification. So we talked earlier about how important it is to be thoughtful about how the victim notification takes place. So this is one way we can hear directly from victims. So they can go in and they can say, I think that my kit might have been a part of the backlog, not sure. But if it was, I would like to be notified via email. And this is my email address. And this is the best way to reach me. Or I would like to talk to somebody in person. And these Mm -hmm. are the hours that I'm most likely to be available. And this is where I would like to be notified. Or I don't want to be notified. I don't want to know anything about it. We cannot guarantee that, but we can at least communicate that to local law enforcement. Or I just need some more information. So um, they have those three options. Mm -hmm. And and we have our team that will notify or they'll they'll contact them if they wish to be contacted. That's great. Yeah. Yeah. That's a really victim-centered approach there. Yes. We are trying. It's It's very challenging because especially when we're talking about victim notification, because you really don't know what that victim wants. And Absolutely. this is the only way we could think of to at least provide an avenue for them to have a voice prior to. But the vast majority of those are going to be notified without having had that input. So we really want to make sure that when we're doing that, that we have victim advocates present, that if law enforcement is making that notification, that they're not in uniform that they're not using marked patrol cars, so the neighbors are wondering what's going on, et cetera. And before we kind of put all these things in place, I had heard about a notification that took place. And well-meaning on on all parties, we just did not have the information needed. But this was a notification on a sexual assault that occurred maybe 15 years prior to the notification. And law enforcement made the notification. There was not a victim advocate present, but the victim's husband and children were present. And that is how that husband learned that his wife had been sexually assaulted. And so because she had never told him. So we want to just think through our notifications and make sure that privacy is protected, confidentiality is protected, and that that support is in place. And Mm -hmm. so, again, if any jurisdiction in Georgia you know, is dealing with this and looking at doing notifications, we are more than happy to use our victim advocates to assist and get, even if it's just giving advice, we're happy to. Is there anything else that either of you would like to add for law enforcement and sexual assault? I think, um, again, just kind of reiterate what I was, what I was saying earlier that, you know, the help is here, you know, the technology is here and, uh, the, and clearly the hope is here. Some of the cases that, some of the seasoned investigators are frustrated on. Don't hesitate. Give us a call and see if we can provide a resource. I've had homicide detectives from an APD and throughout the state that have called me and said, hey, I worked this murder back in 1992 and 
you know, I think I have a DNA swab in the evidence room or, or something like that. So we, we have that resource and to let them know that, you know, we're all here trying to make it, make it work. Yeah. And I would just echo that. There's a lot of cases out there. Dig into them, see what you got, give us a call, utilize the resources that you have at the state level. Because as we've kind of mentioned, the expertise and now the experience working on these cases is there and we are more than happy to help. And just also a big thank you to all of the investigators out there that are working these crimes and trying to do it in a victim-centered way. We've learned so much through this process. One of the biggest messages that we always try to make very, very clear is this is not Monday morning quarterbacking. Like we know different now. We have more Mm -hmm. research. We have more education. We have more training. We have more tools in our toolkits to be able to do this. And so there is no kind of scrutinizing how anything was done 10, 15, 20 years ago. It's just now we have different tools. And so we want to utilize those to get justice if we weren't able to at the time of the crime. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, thank you both so much for coming. We appreciate it. And I'm sure we'll hear from y'all again soon. Of course. Thank y'all so much for joining us. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Gypstick Between the Lines. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. If you'd like to reach out, email us at learn at gpstc.org.